Please turn to the back of the hymn book. Page 904. 904. Last time we looked at the question, for whom did Christ die? Now we want to look at our all-sufficient bridegroom. Second hit of doctrine, Articles 8 and 9. The saving effectiveness of Christ's death. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father that he should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Article 9, the fulfillment of God's plan. This plan, arising out of God's eternal love for his chosen ones, from the beginning of the world to the present time, has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the chosen are gathered into one, all in their own time. And there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises him as her Savior who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride, as a bridegroom for his bride. Open your Bibles, please, now to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And as always, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we look at the first 11 verses of John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 
Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Have you ever witnessed an embarrassing situation at a wedding? The best man suddenly faints at the front of the church. The bride trips on her dress. Because of nervousness, the groom forgets his vows. The soloist mixes up the lines in the song. The ring bearer drops the rings and they go rolling under the pew. An usher clumsily knocks over one of the flower arrangements, leaving a wet mess on the floor. Because I'm a pastor, perhaps I see more of them than you do, but I think most of us have witnessed some sort of awkward situation at a wedding. Some of you maybe remember it well from your own wedding. Maybe you're squirming in your pew right now at the remembrance of it. Well, in the story we want to consider today, John 2, verses 1 through 11, we see an embarrassing situation, point number one, and an astonishing solution, point number two. And I hope that as we make our way through this passage, you will come to a renewed appreciation for our all-sufficient bridegroom. An embarrassing situation, an astonishing solution. In the first chapter of John, Jesus began his public ministry. He was 30 years old when he was baptized by John. The day after his baptism, he began to select his first disciples. John, James, Andrew, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel were the first ones to follow him. Jesus and this small company began to travel together. They traveled on foot for two days, and then chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the third day they came to Cana of Galilee. Cana is thought to have been about nine miles north of Nazareth. Jesus went to Cana because of a wedding. Verse 2 tells us that he and his disciples had been invited. We learn from verse 1 that Jesus' mother was also there. The way the story unfolds, Mary seems to have been more than just a guest. She seems to have been some sort of an assistant at the wedding. Perhaps she was a friend or relative and was present to assist the groom's family with the preparations. When we come to verse 3, we learn that in the midst of the festivities, the servers discovered a serious problem. There was no more wine. They had miscalculated how much they needed. In first century Palestine, weddings were major social events. They were lengthy affairs that sometimes went on for a whole week. Unlike our weddings, which are traditionally paid for by the bride's family, the groom was responsible for the expenses of the feast. 
If you ran out of supplies, it was shameful. It suggested that the bridegroom could not provide for his bride. It was an extreme, extremely disgraceful and embarrassing situation for the bridegroom. And so we read in verse 3, that the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Mary didn't ask him to do something about it. She merely stated the need, they have no more wine. Now, congregation, Jesus had not yet performed any miracles. Verse 11 says that this was the first of his miraculous signs, beginning of signs. In some of the apocryphal writings, there are accounts of Jesus' childhood miracles, that already as a child he was performing some great miracles. Those accounts in the apocryphal writings are clearly fictitious, for John says that up to this point he had not performed any miraculous signs. Nevertheless, more than anyone present at the feast, Mary knew who Jesus really was. You see, 30 years earlier, the angel Gabriel appeared to her in the city of Nazareth. Mary was yet a virgin. And what did the angel say to her? Rejoice! Blessed are you among women! Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, said Gabriel, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. Surely, Mary never forgot that discussion with Gabriel. Even though Jesus had lived a relatively quiet life for 30 years and had not performed any miracles, Mary still knew that he was special. No doubt she also remembered her visit with Elizabeth during her pregnancy. When Mary came and entered her house, it says that the babe leaped in the womb of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then there was also the report which Mary received from the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. In Luke 2.19 we read, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Pondered them in her heart. She did not forget. Then there were also the words of Simeon. At the temple, Simeon had taken the child in his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke 2.22 says, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And we could also mention the remarkable meeting with the wise men from the east. How could Mary ever forget those unusual circumstances surrounding the birth of her son? If anyone could help out in this moment of crisis at a wedding, surely Jesus could. Would he not perhaps do something extraordinary? Mary knew that Jesus was God's Messiah. He was the great prophet like unto Moses. In the wilderness, Moses often supplied the needs of Israel. Could Jesus do that as well? And so she said to him, they have no wine. Congregation, what was Jesus' response? Look at verse 4. Verse 4. 
Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The language almost sounds disrespectful to us, but it certainly wasn't. The same expression is used elsewhere in the New Testament where we learn that there was nothing rude or disrespectful about this form of address. Jesus honored his earthly parents in perfect obedience to the law. And yet, in verse 4, we do sense that Jesus was putting a distance between himself and his mother. While he lived in the home of his earthly parents, he was subject to their authority as a son. But now, as he begins his public ministry, the emphasis shifts from Mary's son to God's Messiah. As a man, he was Mary's son, but as God, he was Mary's Lord. Mary must also come to understand this. As he began his public ministry, he had to act as God led him to act. His relationship to his mother has changed. Mary must begin to see him, not merely as her son, but as her Lord. So while Jesus was respectful, there is nevertheless a slight admonishment here. I will act in my own time. I will supply the need in my own way. My time has not yet come. In other words, I will choose the appropriate moment. I will reveal myself as Messiah when and how I see fit. Incidentally, it's interesting to read how some of the older commentaries use verse 4 to refute some of the practices of Roman Catholicism. For example, one writer said this, Mary was not without error and sin, as Romish writers have dared to assert, and was not meant to be prayed to and adored. If our Lord would not allow his mother even to suggest to him the working of a miracle, we may well suppose that all Roman Catholic prayers to the Virgin Mary, and especially prayers entreating her to command her son, are most offensive and blasphemous in his eyes. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, these errors are very much alive yet today in Roman Catholicism. Mary is exalted to a position far beyond what our Lord Jesus himself gave to her. He would not allow her even to suggest to him the working of a miracle. Nevertheless, when you come to verse 5, you see that while verse 4 was a mild admonishment, Mary herself did not regard it as a sharp rebuke, for she remained undeterred. She must have sensed that Jesus was prepared to act in some way, for we read in verse 5 that she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary anticipated that he might do something. So that's point number one, an embarrassing situation. They have no more wine. We move on then, secondly, to an astonishing solution. An astonishing solution. Please follow along at verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 
The stone water jars were of considerable size. In total, they held roughly 120 to 180 gallons. According to John, the purpose of these jars was for the purification of the Jews, ceremonial washing. Before they ate, the guests would have water poured over their hands by a servant. If the feast continued for a number of days, which wedding feasts usually did, the process would be repeated before each meal. Between the meals, a person may have contracted defilement in some way, and therefore the process had to be repeated each time again. If there were numerous guests, there would be a need for a fair amount of water. The process of ceremonial purification is mentioned in Mark 7, verse 3, where it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. As you know, the Pharisees were very meticulous about their rules and regulations. They later became rather annoyed with Jesus' Jesus' disciples when they did not observe the tradition of the elders, but ate with unwashed hands. So the six water jars of verse 6 were intended for this purpose. Jesus instructed the servants in verse 7 to take these stone water pots and fill them with water. The servants did so and filled them to the brim. The fact that the jars were filled to the brim eliminated the possibility of someone inserting something else into them. Nothing could be added for they were filled to the very top. There was no trickery or deception here. After the water jugs were filled, Jesus said to them in verse 8, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Although they must have been somewhat perplexed, the servants did. According to Mary's instructions, whatever Jesus said to them, they did. Perhaps they were bracing for a scolding from the master of the feast for having brought him ordinary water. However, if they anticipated a scolding, they were very pleasantly surprised. Verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. The master of the banquet was so impressed with what the servants brought him that he immediately called for the bridegroom himself. John doesn't tell us when it happened, but at some point the water actually changed into wine. The fact that John specified the amount and size of the water jars seems to indicate that all six jars, 120 to 180 gallons, were changed from water into wine. Now, rather than having a shortage of wine and being severely embarrassed before all their guests, this couple would have a surplus more than enough. And in verse 10, the master of the feast expressed surprise at the quality. He said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. It appeared as though this bridegroom was not following the usual procedure. Ordinarily, the best wine was served first. When the taste buds were still sensitive, as the feast wore on, the cheaper wine would be brought out that of inferior quality. The master of the banquet was surprised that at this wedding, the order was reversed. 
At any rate, Jesus saved the bridegroom great embarrassment and the festivities could continue as planned. Now, congregation, what's the point of this story? What's the meaning of it all? There are several peripheral lessons that could be drawn from this account. For one, we can learn that the state of marriage is honorable in the sight of Jesus. His first public appearance with his newly chosen disciples was at a marriage feast. The form which we use in our churches for the solemnization of marriage includes these words, Our Lord Jesus honored marriage by his blessed presence at the wedding in Cana. You're well familiar with those words. One of the creation ordinances which God has woven into the fabric of the universe is the institution of marriage. In Genesis 2, God designed marriage in such a way that a man and a woman are to leave their father and mother and cleave to one another. As a man and a woman cleave to one another, God blesses them and enriches their lives. All the ball and chain jokes that we hear about marriage and how it takes away one's freedom is certainly not, it's certainly not a biblical view. The holy bond of marriage was instituted by God himself at the very dawn of history. It was intended to be a source of happiness to man, an institution of the highest significance to the human race. Again, you're very, very familiar with those words, right? A society like ours that loses sight of the beauty and value of the marriage bond and even redefines marriage is a society that will not, cannot flourish. By his presence at this wedding and by working a miracle, Jesus was putting his stamp of approval upon that which the Lord instituted at the very dawn of history. A second peripheral lesson that we can draw from this account is that there are certainly legitimate occasions for joy, celebration, and feasting. There are certainly legitimate occasions for joy, celebration, and feasting. Jesus did not refuse the invitation to this wedding feast. He made a special point of traveling with his disciples to Cana to be present. He shared the joy of this couple. While Christians cannot participate in sinful activities, we are certainly permitted to participate in legitimate God-honoring feasts. Christian wedding celebrations should be joyful, happy events. Unfortunately, there are many, many wedding receptions today that most certainly do not receive the blessing of the Lord. At times, there is drunkenness, which God clearly condemns. There are those who have a, a nice church service where some pious words are spoken and the couple is encouraged to begin their marriage in the Lord. But then afterwards, when the party begins, it soon becomes evident through the celebration that the marriage has hardly begun in the Lord. Now, there are those who would contend on the basis of John 2 that Jesus condoned excessive drinking on this occasion. After all, he made 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Furthermore, verse 10 seems to indicate that at such feasts, the good wine was served first, and then after they were well on their way to being drunk, the cheaper wine was set on the table. 
To arrive at the conclusion that Jesus condoned excessive drinking on the basis of this passage is most certainly flawed. Jesus was very much aware of what the scripture said about the sin of drunkenness. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. In the New Testament, Galatians 5, it lists drunkenness among the works of the flesh and it says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Surely our Lord did not condone excessive drinking. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, that does not mean that Christians cannot have happiness in their celebrations. One old writer in the Puritan tradition said this, listen, the Christian who withdraws entirely from the society of his fellow men and walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he was always attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. A cheerful, kindly spirit is a great recommendation to a believer. It is a positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. It is a positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. As our Lord, we have the right to to promote joy and gladness. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, Matthew 11, 19. There are legitimate occasions for celebration and feasting, providing we remain within the boundaries of God's law. And then a third peripheral matter that we are reminded of in this story is the amazing power displayed by our Lord Jesus. The amazing power displayed by our Lord Jesus. When God created the world, he spoke and it was so. When God made Adam, he formed him from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here in John 2, we do not read that Jesus spoke or commanded the water to change. We do not read that he touched the water jars or that he prayed to his Father. We do not read of any outward visible action which accompanied this miracle. Our Lord Jesus simply willed the change. And by the power of his will the water changed into wine. Performed in such a manner, the miracle clearly reveals the exalted character of the one who performed it. This is no ordinary prophet. He who was able to perform such mighty work by the power of his will was nothing less than God himself. Verse 11 says... Go down there. Verse 11 says that through this first of his miraculous signs, Jesus manifested his glory. The miracle proclaimed who he was. Verse 11 also says that through this sign, his disciples put their faith in him. They believed in him. 
they were convicted that no mere man was capable of performing such works. This must be the Messiah. Congregation, it's a comfort for us to know that the same power revealed in this sign, the power of God, is exercised on behalf of His people still today. The absence of His bodily presence is no reason for discouragement. The mere power of His will, exercised for the good of His people, is sufficient for us. His power is not diminished. He who supplied so generously for the physical needs of these people is no less generous when it comes to the spiritual needs of His elect. Which brings us to what I believe is the most significant aspect of these verses. Yes, we can learn from this story that the state of marriage is honorable in the sight of God and in the sight of Jesus. We can learn that there are legitimate occasions for joy and feasting, and we can be reminded of the amazing power and authority of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, most important of all, we need to understand from this passage the unlimited provision of the bridegroom for his bride. The unlimited provision of the bridegroom for his bride. I said that the deficiency of wine at the wedding in Cana would have been very embarrassing for the bridegroom, for it would have suggested that the bridegroom could not adequately provide for his bride. Jesus saved the bridegroom much embarrassment and shame by helping him out. But the main point is not that Jesus was a kind person who pitied the man and wanted to save him the embarrassment. The main point is more profound. What we need to understand here is that Jesus is himself a bridegroom. Jesus is himself a bridegroom. He is a bridegroom who has come from heaven. He has come to take a bride to himself. And he is not an insufficient bridegroom. He is able to provide for all the needs of his elect. Article 8 of the second hit of Doctrine of the Canons of Dort says that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father. It goes on to say that by his death he purchased faith for his elect and all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit. He cleansed them from all their sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith. He faithfully preserves them to the very end and at last brings them without spot or wrinkle to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. And then Article 9 goes on to say, that the opposition of the gates of hell cannot overturn his plan for the elect. They will in due time be gathered together into one and there will always be a church composed of believers the foundation of which is laid in the blood of Christ. 
You see, if God has graciously enabled you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, then you can be assured that He will meet all your needs. When changing the water into wine, Jesus provided more than enough wine that was needed for the feast. He was showing He was showing through this very first miracle of his ministry that he was able to provide abundantly for the needs of his elect people. The bride will never be let down by the bridegroom. The bride will never be disappointed by an insufficient supply. Jesus has come to make full provision for every need of his bride. Now, we should not overlook the fact that John specifically mentions that the water pots that were standing there, those water pots, were for Jewish ceremonial washing. Why is that recorded there? It was this very water of Jewish purification that Jesus changed into wine. John draws our attention to this fact. The Jewish ceremonial system had become largely a system of rules and regulations meant to earn salvation. Through obedience to all their laws, they anticipated being saved. Their system, however, did not bring true and lasting provision to the people of God. It would eventually show itself to be completely worthless and empty. By using these very water jars meant for the Jewish purification rites and changing this water into wine, Jesus was showing them that there was a much better way. Salvation could not be attained through man-made systems and regulations. Salvation could only be achieved through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The provisions of Pharisaism were inadequate. The provisions of Christ were necessary and all-sufficient. In Isaiah 55, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, extended a call to receive the salvation of the servant of the Lord. He said, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy What? Wine and milk without money and without price. All that is needed for spiritual life and refreshment is found in the servant of the Lord. Jesus Christ. It's found in him. Those who have nothing in themselves are invited to eat and drink free of charge. The bridegroom provides for his bride so that she lacks nothing. Congregation, it is this that we must understand in this second chapter of John. Jesus provides for his chosen ones. He provides that which is far greater than merely physical provision. He provides for the eternal welfare of his elect. As the bridegroom... He came to give his life for the bride so that she may be purged, restored, and cleansed. 
He came to suffer so that he may purchase and receive that bride to himself. Dear friends, he calls you today to believe in him and to set aside all empty traditions that you may be putting your trust in. Anything that hinders you from fixing your gaze exclusively upon the Savior. You are called to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are to show your love for Him by listening to what He says. A bride who merely follows her own will and does her own thing and insists on being her own person Such a bride shows in her life that either her love is very weak or she has no genuine love at all for the bridegroom. A bride who wants to hear the voice of the bridegroom. A bride who loves the sound of his voice and sets aside her own wishes for the sake of the bridegroom. Such a one shows true love by her actions. Jesus has come to provide for his bride to remove her sin and grant her fullness of life, he then wants to see a response in the lives of his people, that of obedience, love, self-denial, and worship. And he actually creates that response in us. He causes us, in the words of Article 9, to steadfastly love persistently worship and faithfully serve him who as a bridegroom for his bride laid down his life for us upon the cross. He causes his elect to celebrate his praises here and through all eternity. Dear friends, have you understood his amazing provision for his bride? Have you understood what he has done for his chosen one? His blood was poured out so that you may be delivered from death and granted a place at the great wedding feast. In closing, I ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Revelation 19. Soon a much greater wedding feast than the one at Cana will be held. Jesus Christ will be revealed as the bridegroom and believers will be, his, will be the bride. In a book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 6, the apostle John heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now look with me, please, to verse 7. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, in verse 11 of John 2, we read that Jesus revealed his glory at the wedding in Cana. 
But how much greater will be the manifestation of his glory at that final great wedding feast? Blessed are those who take part in that wedding feast. What a day of celebration as the bridegroom receives the bride in his loving embrace, nevermore to depart from one another. Congregation, don't turn away from his provision. Don't reject the bridegroom. Hear his voice today calling you to himself. Don't turn to any other as a husband. No other can provide sufficiently. All others will lead you to death. Only Jesus can remove the emptiness and offensiveness of your sin. Rejoice in him. And one day, the fullness of his glory will be manifested to you. You will celebrate his praises through all eternity. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us pray. Lord our God, what a tremendous provision you have made through your beloved Son, the all-sufficient bridegroom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world and for doing all that was necessary to purchase a bride for yourself. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each and every person here this afternoon would one day share in that unspeakable joy of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, Lord, we may all one day gather in your presence and know that as a bridegroom, our Lord Jesus does not disappoint. He does not fail. He has done all that is necessary that we may enjoy the glory of your presence. We think of Jesus manifesting his glory at the wedding in Cana, but then, Lord, to think of the glory that will be manifested at his coming. It is beyond our comprehension. We do pray, Lord, that on that final day, each and every one of us will rejoice with exceedingly great joy, be received by the bridegroom into his loving embrace, to enjoy the glory of his presence and his love and his compassion, his faithfulness forevermore. Lord, teach us to live already now for the glory of the bridegroom. May each one of us hear his voice. May each one of us respond appropriately May we live a life that expresses our gratitude for all that he has accomplished. So, Lord, may we ponder these things together. And after the service, may we make applications for each other, with each other. And may we be strengthened in faith. And may our 
May our hope increase as we await the day of his coming. In his name we pray. Amen.